Well, amen. It is awesome to have you with us today and awesome to be worshiping together and singing some of the very promises of Isaiah. And thanks, too, for participating here, whether you're participating here in the room or, or whether you're participating on the atrium or participating from home. And I know many of you are actually enjoying this service uh, to help us out, too, because our 945 service is completely packed with 50 people in overflow. So thanks for those of you prioritizing the service so we can worship together here, but also we can make space for folks at that service. So it's, I really appreciate that as well. We, we are in the book of Matthew, and we've been going through a journey using our idea of Matthew laying out the course. And we have made it from the connection to Abraham that Jesus has to David. We've covered a whole bunch of incredible connections Matthew's making with Moses. And now we're moving to a section of one, two, three, four, five chunks of Matthew, each of which ends with a major teaching portion of Jesus. The same way Moses had five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Jesus has five sections of teaching. So you are here today. We are in chapter 4. He is announcing the kingdom, and with that, he is going to have a major teaching about the kingdom, what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Now today, one of the things he's going to pick up is one of those predictions from the Old Testament, and it's one of the predictions going back to Isaiah. What did Isaiah tell us about Jesus is that he would be the light. And you would know how to find the light by following 700-year-old predictions. I got a buddy of mine who loves golf, played golf his whole life, been part of the country club his whole life, loves going out with friends and playing. And so I was asking him a little about golf because I'm not as much of a golfer. I'm a goofy golfer. I'm an expert. But real golf, not so much. And I said, hey, is there any way, if you love golf, to extend your golf playing into the night? He said, well, there's two ways. One of which is there are 26 golf courses in America that let you play at night, which is pretty interesting. Six to nine holes. Uh, there's a couple places in the world you can do night skiing, you know, Perfect North being one of them. So as someone who loves to ski, I love uh, night skiing. But you can play golf. Some of you are like, why did you tell my husband this? Oh my goodness, I, this is going to feed the addiction, feed the addiction. But 26 places that you can play, but you got to go to a specific place to do it. The other way is he says occasionally about once or twice a year we'll have a fundraiser and we will have a night golf on our regular course. And you can get LED golf balls, you put some uh, lights along your clubs, and you'll play for charity. And I'm like, well, that's really fun. And you're going to see that kind of metaphor play out today in the passage because there's going to be times in our lives that we need to play in the dark. We don't like those times. We're hoping those times pass by quickly. But if you're going to play in the dark, it's going to require you to understand a specific place I need to go when I'm in the dark to find the light. And what is the specific light that can pierce through the darkness and the doubts that I have? That's not only true personally, that's certainly been true corporately. Israel's been trying to play in the dark for 400 years of silence, just like 400 years of bondage in Egypt. And they've been playing in the dark, but God says, I want you to know a light is coming. It's a specific light coming to a very specific location. And so as you think about the dark seasons, dark times in your life, we're going to look at how we can trust his light, that it really is coming. Trust his timing, even when we don't like it. And ultimately understand his strategy of partnering with him in being the light. So we'll put those three things together. What does it look like for us to begin by trusting his light and his location. So there's a principle here that I think applies to all of us. Whatever darkness you're experiencing, 
whatever it is, whether it's now, whether it was last year, whether it's coming in the next decade, whatever darkness you experience, it cannot extinguish God's light. In fact, the darkness you're going through or might go through might even reveal God's light in your life. We certainly see that with Jesus here in chapter 4. It says, now, when Jesus heard that John had been imprisoned. So this is a dark time. <laughs> He's the one that's leading the kingdom, and now, if John's in prison, I'm probably going to be in prison. It's unjust. It's unfair. He's my cousin. He's my friend. He's my co-minister. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, it's that darkness that has him on the move. Right? It's when he heard, connected to, it's then he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, Branchville, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. To which you're like, oh my goodness, all these Bible terms, what's the point? We've already heard the point. If you are a first generation Jewish person living in the first century, like, he's where? He's in the Galilees? He's in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali? Ding, 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 ding. Lights are going on the dashboard. This is important. And, and since we may not know that, Matthew tells us why it's important. When that it might be fulfilled, oh, this is something that was set up for us nine, 700 years earlier. Him moving to Galilee, him coming to Capernaum, him coming to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali is, exa whoa, is exactly what was fulfilled or said about by the prophet Isaiah saying, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, 800 B.C. that's written, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness will find a great light. Okay, so Chad, where is this place? Well, let me show you on a map. Where is Zebulun and Naphtali? All right, we'll start here in the, in the Mediterranean Sea. We're going to make our way here to Israel. And we recognize Israel is almost always the Dead Sea here, Jordan River, up to the big area we know as the Sea of Galilee. When Joshua is dividing up the land, it's divided amongst the 12 tribes of Israel, two of which are named Zebulun and Naphtali. So imagine, it's 1250 B.C., and you're going to predict... The Messiah is going to come of all the places in the world. He's going to come from Israel. He's going to come from this region. He's going to spend his time in this area, Zebulun and Naphtali. Assuming your nation exists by the time Messiah gets here, assuming people still have records of who Zebulun and Naphtali are, imagine making a 1,200-year-old prediction. And this is exactly, exactly where Jesus finds himself in the land of Zebulun. So here's Zebulun. Tip of Sea of Galilee here. Here's what it looks like today. Here's Naphtali. This is Jesus' backyard. This is where he ministers. This is where he talks. This is where he interacts. Now, why is it called the Galilee of the Gentiles? The Galilee simply means region or district. Why in the world, in the middle of Israel, do we have a Galilee of the Gentiles? <laughs> because Solomon gave away that section of the Promised Land. What? 1,000 B.C., people were not happy. He hired people up near Syria to come and do the woodwork in the temple. And he's so happy with their work, he gives away 10 cities, including this land. So in Israel, this was like the despised area of Israel. It was the district of the Gentiles. 
This was the dark place. This was the like scorned place. And yet, this is exactly what Isaiah says 800 years earlier would be the place to find the light, the exact location on planet Earth. So what does that mean for you and I? We're all going to go through dark times. Jesus with his cousin being imprisoned. The nation, 400 years since we've heard from the prophet Malachi, waiting for God to speak. What do you do? If you're in darkness, seek the light. God, you've promised light. I'm seeking you in during this time of darkness. When I hear that people, injustice have happened to me, when I hear that I'm going difficult times, when I hear unfairness has happened to someone I care about, I want to seek you as the light. And God, while I'm going through this time of darkness, I want to be the light. I want to shine your light through me, through my circumstances right now. What does it look like for you to seek the light in darkness and to be the light of Christ in darkness? I was talking to a friend of mine uh, about a month ago, and he'd been through a really long time of darkness. He uh, had huge retirement plans. They'd saved up their whole life. Finally got to retirement years. Put the job behind him. They're about to travel. All the dreams they'd had for decades. And his wife got early onset dementia. And everything about his retirement years and all the planning they did and the hopes they had changed. I watched him for the last six years as she slowly degraded and all the plans they had, he had to mourn and she had to mourn and how he cared for her and loved her. And I talked about a month ago. She'd, she'd passed away about a year ago now. And I said, how, how did you walk through that time of darkness as a couple? How did you walk through it as a, a husband? He simply said it was hard, but I just kept asking God for courage, asking God for strength. and saying, God, I need you to use me in my circumstance to draw other people to yourself. Because there's a lot of tears, a lot of anger, but that was what I kept coming back to. I'm going to seek the light and be the light while I'm going through darkness. Which requires trust, right? How do you trust the light? How do you trust that God has a plan in the midst of it? He did, down to the very exact place on a map. So how do we trust his timing? Because <laughs> isn't it true that when you're sitting during dark, in a dark room, when you're sitting in dark times, it can cause you to doubt whenever or if ever God's going to bring the light. Sure, I don't mind waiting a week or a month or a year. I don't like it. But a decade? 400 years of silence they've waited on? And notice how many times he says they've been sitting here. The people who sat in darkness. You ever been in line? You wait for a little bit, you think it's going to go quickly, and then you start leaning on a wall because it's going to take a longer. And eventually, like, you know, never mind, I'm just going to sit down. It's going to be a long time. They sat in darkness. However, they have seen a great light. There is hope coming. God does have a plan. He does have a timing. It's in the future. It's coming. You can trust that. And those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, and the way this rhymes here, this poetry going on, shadow of death rhymes with darkness. 
darkness can feel like the shadow. I'm in the shadow. I'm forgotten. I'm just, why would God let that happen? Why would life let that happen to me in my life? But those who sat in the shadow of light, of darkness, light has dawned. It is coming. And it's right into that we're going to find that Jesus speaks up and stands up and begins to preach and proclaim the light that he's bringing. That everything was right on God's timetable. But when you're sitting in it, it doesn't feel like there's any timetable at all. So about a month ago, uh, I had an opportunity to uh, be part of a, a funeral here at our church. And I knew Kevin Fry and his family, and, and I knew uh, Alma, Elaine, uh, his mom. She attended our church. But, you know, sometimes as a pastor, you kind of think you know people. And you come to a funeral and you're like, I really didn't know people. And Kevin shared just how his mom went through all kinds of dark seasons. that I just didn't realize how dark they were. And how she was able to seek the light but also to be the light to people who watched. So I asked him to share his mom's story so it could be an inspiration to us as how she did that as someone who attended our church. Let's watch. My mother, Elaine Fry, passed away on January 8th. She was a strong and courageous woman that inspired me as well as so many others. Yet most people had no idea of the adversity and darkness that she endured. Romans 8.28 states, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And this was certainly the case with mom. Mom's first marriage did not work out. She only shared that it was abusive and she had to get out. While going through mom's paperwork, I found her marriage license from when she married dad, they got married in Lawrenceburg, Indiana in October of 1965. And five months later, I was born and coming in at eight pounds, five ounces as a preemie delivered four months early was quite impressive. Our early years were marked by living in multiple locations. I did not understand as a youngster that we were moving from eviction to eviction. If anything, I thought it was a grand adventure. Our highlight or perhaps low light was living at three different addresses on the same street in one year. The reality was that dad was not working and would often disappear, and mom would have to move us each time and figure things out. She was the anchor that we could trust to never leave us and always take care of us. Eventually, we ended up in Milford where we had a landlord that would not evict us as he felt bad for us. Dad went through a rotation of jobs, typically selling insurance, cars, you name it, but he would go for a bit and then just stop going to work until they let him go. During one of our very difficult times, mom would set up a table in front of a gas station near our home and take up whatever she thought she could sell in a wagon. Well, one day she wrote me a note asking me to be the man of the house and watch the kids while she spent the day in the hot sun trying to sell something. This really had an impact on me and I saved that note. Two days before mom passed away, I shared that story with her and what it meant to me and she told me that she was just trying to sell enough stuff to feed us kids for the next day. Think about that. She would humble herself and do whatever it took to take care of us. In many ways, mom was a prisoner of a bad marriage. There were five kids, seven of us total in the family, renting a two-bedroom, single-bath ranch house. There were many times that the only car we had was a demo from dad's work and he was gone all day. 
Yet mom endured through the adversity with a smile and positive attitude. Mom loved spending time with her family. She loved the holidays, especially Thanksgiving and Christmas. She loved to decorate and to cook. And those meals and gatherings were put together with such love that we will never forget them. And even in the very lean years, mom always made sure to make our Christmases special. I know that I will never forget them. As each of us kids grew older, mom was eventually able to get divorced and rebuild her life after so many struggles. Throughout everything, she had always been selfless. Even when we were crammed in that small ranch house, we were like a shelter for runaways, bringing in multiple people over the years that mom would help. She was always there for others with a compassionate ear and loving heart. Mom battled cancer multiple times. I remember taking her to the ophthalmologist where she had concerns about having a cataract. The doctor found cancer in her eye and told her it had to come out immediately and it was removed within a couple of weeks. What did mom do? She took it in stride and of course would even make jokes about it, even telling us, I'll keep my eye on you. Mom was my ultimate role model. Remember when I shared that story about the note she wrote me before going to the gas station? I became a 12-year-old adult that day. A light switched in my head for everything that made my mother's life difficult. I wanted to not do that. I wanted to fix that, and I wanted the best for our mother. I wanted to have a wonderful marriage filled with love and to focus on family and have mom be part of that, and she was able. And for all the years of having nothing, I wanted to spoil her and give her the best. And God blessed our family, and I was able to bring her to Hawaii while stationed there. I must share that mom was afraid to fly, but she got on that huge 747 and flew all the way to see us. And little did she know, I had some more adventures planned. I had set up a helicopter ride and even told the pilot to really take it easy, and he agreed. Of course, about three minutes into the flight, he took off like a bat out of hell, and I remember looking back, and Mom had a death grip on her seat. However, about 45 minutes later, we were flying about 140 knots right over the waves as they broke along the beach. And when I looked back, Mom had a huge smile on her face. Mom was a strong, courageous woman who endured a lot of adversity in her life. Yet she always put others before herself. One of the highlights these last few years was a Wednesday night Bible study we put together, which mom attended. And as a smart Bible study leader, I would save the difficult questions I could not answer and then invite Chad to join us for dinner and Bible study and then let them stump him with those difficult questions. I want all of you to know that mom really experienced a revival in her spiritual walk with Christ. She was confident in her faith and her eternal destination. She sought God through her dark times, and not only did he guide her, but God's light shone through mom's life to be a light to those that watched her. I love you, mom, and I can't wait to join you in heaven. All right, Kevin, you made me cry twice. I'm just so struck by someone who could seek God's light with chapter after chapter of darkness and do it with such joy and find that Christ could be that source of strength and courage and joy, but also that her life could draw so many other people because she trusted the light and she trusted God's timing in whatever form it came. And here in, the passage, you have, in this passage, you have the whole collective nation of Israel doing the same thing. And Matthew's saying, 
The wait is over. The time has come. All that waiting that Isaiah told us about, from that time, from that time, God's time, the light Jesus in the right place, now in the right time, now in the right location, began to preach and proclaim the light, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The light of heaven has arrived on the dark earth. What does that mean? This is going to be John's main message and Jesus' main message. The kingdom of heaven is here. You've sought the light, it's arrived. Well, the idea of God as the king isn't a message started by Jesus. This is something that begins way back in the Old Testament. See, God designed us human beings that we were to co-reign with God by bearing his image on earth. That the kingdom of heaven would, would be demonstrated on earth and we could partner with him. So it begins in Genesis chapter 1. God says, let us make man in our image. And I want them, and you hear these kingdom words, I want them to have dominion. I want them to reign over the earth, over all the earth, over all the creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created man in his image to bear his image, to bear his kingdom, to bear his priorities, to co-reign on earth with him. God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and here's another dominion, kingdom word, subdue it, have dominion, reign over the earth. This has always been God's plan, to have heaven on earth. I'll give you two more. First time God is mentioned as king is right back to Moses. As soon as they cross over the Red Sea, God is mentioned in the metaphor of a king who reigns on earth. I will sing to the Lord. It's a song about the Red Sea crossing. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider, he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation for the Lord shall reign. And there it is again. First time mentioned, God is a king who reigns on earth forever and ever. The kingdom of heaven is here. And God's design back in the Old Testament and still today is that you would co-reign with him on earth. Really? Yeah. I'll show you how Moses says it. And I'll show you how the New Testament says it. God is taking back the darkness of this world. He's repairing all the damage we did by choosing darkness over light, by not bearing his image the way we were called to. God is taking back the darkness, and he wants to join us again to do it. The Lord called to Moses from a mountain, and he said, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. And you shall, you my people shall be to me a kingdom of priests. You mean the pastors, right? No, no, no. Every individual follower of God was to be a kingdom of priests. What does a priest do? I talk to God about the people, and I talk to the people about God. Did you know that you're called to be a priest? If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a priest. And you're part of a kingdom of priests. You're a holy nation made holy by God. Unless you think this is just Old Testament, the Apostle Peter picks up this and says almost word for word this, and he tells you what our purpose is. You are a chosen generation, Peter says, a royal priesthood, king's priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, 
but for a purpose, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See how it's all connected? So to see how, how Elaine went through darkness, but she was a kingdom of priests, representing God to her family and friends, but also praying to God for her family and friends, drawing people to his marvelous light. So for you and I, how can we trust God that his light is coming, that his light is Jesus, and his timing is not our timing ever, but we're going to trust that he wants us to proclaim his light during the timing of the dark stuff. Because Jesus says the light's here, the kingdom has come. So be ready. Now we're going to get into Jesus' strategy. <laughs> Like, what is God's strategy for changing the world? If that was his strategy in the Old Testament, you would imagine it's probably still his strategy in the New Testament. How do we trust his strategy? And what is his strategy? Here's God's strategy. And here's Jesus' strategy. He wants to spread his light through the world. And he wants to partner with you and I to do it. Doesn't it sound like a very inefficient, bad idea? It didn't work out real well last time with Adam and Eve. But God is hopelessly devoted to partnering with us to be a kingdom of priests. God wants to put the light in us, and then he wants to spread the light through us. Here's what happens. So having proclaimed the kingdom is here, Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers. Simon, called Peter later, Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. So what's Jesus doing? He's collecting another group of light bearers that he's going to put the light in to help spread the light. Here's Jesus' mission statement. I'm the light and I want to teach everybody to spread the light to everybody. Everybody you work with, everyone you work near, everyone that you uh, do business with, everyone that you raise in your family. I want everyone to spread the light to everyone. So where is Capernaum? Where is Jesus at in this moment? Well, let me show you. We're coming around the Sea of Galilee from that map we looked at earlier. So we're up there in that section of Israel. The Mountain of Beatitudes, uh, next week or next couple weeks, this is this where he's going to preach the Sermon on the Mount, where this section of Matthew is going to end. But we're not quite there. We're going clockwise around. Jesus, primarily his ministry is done in Galilee, the, 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 the district of the Galilee here. In Capernaum, he picks up a couple disciples there where they're fishing. And then he moves around to Bethsaida where he picks up a few more disciples. So if you come to Capernaum today, you're going to see that almost certainly we have found a St. Peter's house. It looks like a giant octagon on top because they built a church on top of it. But underneath, sure enough, it's a massive home. And that would be the home that Jesus and the disciples did most of their work from. There's also a ginormous synagogue there. You can still see the remnants today that was there in Jesus' day. Jesus had full access to scrolls and studying of God's word. And he used that to teach his disciples. Now, here's what most um, archaeologists think that looked like in their day. So this would have been Peter's house. Peter was very, very wealthy as a, as a, a fisherman. He built a house that was pretty massive. He lived there. His wife lived there. His mother-in-law lived there. They had huge meeting rooms. That's why Jesus used this as his ministry center for all his disciples for the next three years. The synagogue looks something like this. 
You see the seats, you see the pillars. This is where Jesus would have taught. This is where Jesus would have learned um, Torah and synagogue. And he's picking out disciples to go and spread the light. Now, going from there, it says, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat, and Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And again, immediately, they're like, I want to be part of this. And they left their boat and their father and followed him. So now we're moving clockwise. We move Capernaum. We've now made it to Bethsaida. So as you make your way around the, the Sea of Galilee, when I say sea, we'd call it a big lake. It's like seven miles by 13 miles. So they call it a sea. We'd probably call it a lake. So he gets to Bethsaida, and here he picks up several more disciples. And we have dug down there, and almost certainly those disciples lived in one of these homes. This is the home we found of a fisherman. There's hooks there. There's netting there. Or with the, how you would set up a house for the netting. And here's what it would have looked like in those days. This is what the house of James and John and their family would look like. You'd come in, you'd lay your nets out there, there'd be a room, there'd be an eating area, an outdoor area. And Jesus is walking through saying, I am the light, and I'm inviting people to pass out the light with me, to find me as the light and to help spread the light. And it's a pretty amazing little uh, town. You think that of all the years Jesus picks a primary group of his disciples from this little bitty town who just taught people how to work well and how to learn about God well. So the passage continues and it says, the light of God's kingdom, Jesus is inviting people to bear light with him. He says, now here's the goal of the light. I want the light of my kingdom. It's designed to expand and draw people to it. And here's how he says that in verse 23. So Jesus goes now about all Galilee with his 12 disciples. He's teaching in all the different synagogues. He preaches the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom is God is here. You didn't live up to his standards. You didn't bear witness the way you were supposed to. But the light's coming back to repair all that. So admit that you didn't live up to his standards. Admit you didn't bear witness the way you are supposed to. Invite the light into you, forgive you. And now let's start proclaiming the light. He's... Healing all kinds of sicknesses, all kinds of diseases among the people. Verse 24, his fame, Jesus was very, very famous. His fame begins to spread not just through Israel but through Syria. And they bring to him all kinds of sick people who are afflicted with diseases and torments and those who are demon-possessed. Epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. The kingdom of light is here. Great multitudes followed him. From Galilee, from Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Which again, like, what do those terms mean? Let me show you on a map. So, if you look at the right-hand side, we have several areas here. So up here, we have Capernaum. Then over here, we have Bethsaida. Over here, we have Decapolis, which is a gigantic Roman city filled with people who do not believe in the Jewish God. They're beginning to follow him up by Sea of Galilee. Then it begins to spread down here by Jerusalem and down here by Judea. The light is beginning to spread as people recognize they didn't bear witness to the light the way they were supposed to. And now the light has come and they want to be part of the light. Now, if you look at a world map, you now see the light is in the Middle East. It's here in Israel. And it's just north of Israel in Syria now the light's spreading. And in the next hundred years, Jesus' strategy is going to change the world. Everything you see in green is where Christianity is going to spread in the next hundred years. Look how well Jesus' strategy worked. 
He had three years to change the world forever. Jesus is not only the Messiah, he is a genius statistician. He is a genius strategist. He is a genius uh, methodology of taking the message of God and not only doing it, but then creating a mechanism to make sure that light spreads. I've come as the light. I'm going to put the light of my Holy Spirit in those who believe in me so they can be the light, and that light will spread through time and space, which is where you and I come in. Jesus shined in the location predicted by Isaiah so that you and I can shine in our location right now. You think the job you're in is random? You think the family you're in is random? Do you think the neighborhood you live in is because it was a nice house and you got a good deal? I'm sure that was part of the factors. But from Christian's perspective, that's not why you're in your house. That's not why you're in your job. That's not why you have your opportunities. Jesus shined in the location, land of Zebulun, land of, of, of Galilee, in the district of the, of, the, of the Gentiles, just as was predicted, so that you would shine for him in your location, in your circumstances, in your darkness, in your challenges. To say, God... In light of what you've done for me, I want to be part of your strategy. Teach me how to shine right now. I'm going to seek you as my light right now. Maybe for the first time, you're asking him to be a forgiver. Maybe for the hundredth time, you're asking God, how can I shine your light, proclaim, proclaim you in the darkness I'm going through. God, help me how I can be a witness, be a light as people watch me going through cancer, caring for a, a, a family member who's, who's got a, maybe a, a medical issue. How do you help me be the light as I'm facing disappointment? How can I be a light in giving grace and truth in a circumstance? How can I proclaim your light in being forgiving to someone who really doesn't deserve it, but that family is watching me in these circumstances? How can you and I be a light in our current location what does it look like for me to wait on God's timing and for those watching you are they watching you wait and saying wow I've seen a lot of people wait but I've never seen somebody wait like that they can wait on God while bearing witness to their trust in him even when they're irritated about the timing and how do I say God help me start conversations with my friends, with colleagues, about my faith, about my journey, about my source of strength, so that I can increase and spread your light. I can be part of that global movement that you started called the church. Jesus shined in the location so that you and I would shine for him in our location. Let's pray and ask God for wisdom on how to do exactly that. Father, thank you. Thank you for uh, all the ways that you have shown your light, not just through Jesus, but through the people in our congregation who have chosen to love you, to invite friends to services so they could find you, the stories of friends who invited friends, who invited friends, who invited friends to find the light. God, thank you for a community we're part of today that gets to work alongside you to do your work of changing the world. 
In Jesus' name, amen.